Well, in the lead up to the federal election which we had recently, I came across a lot of ads in my Facebook feed from the Australian Electoral Commission, you know, the guys who organise all the election. And uh, those ads had the purpose of trying to educate people uh, how to actually cast their vote, uh, where they were to vote and how to fulfil their responsibilities as voters. And it was very interesting to read. Uh, for some reason, I decided to read the comments for these ads. I don't know why. You never read the comments on anything on the internet. Um, but I did. And over and over again, un underneath these ads, people would express uh, extreme cynicism about the whole voting process. They took this opportunity to do that. And so they would ask over and over again variations of the question of the commission. Uh, what do I do, guys, if I actually don't want to vote for anyone who's on the paper? Because I don't like them, or I think they're a waste of time. You know, I mean, the answer that they gave was, of course, the technical one. Well, you could just informally vote. Uh, or, you know, you could put no one's name in. Sorry, I'm getting a, a feedback. I love my booming voice, but uh, booming slightly less is great. Thank you. Um, but that's the problem that they, ha you know, that they had, that they felt that oh, all I can do is give up because there's no one to vote for that I want to vote for. And those comments, I think, are a sign of something deep in Australia at the moment, which is a fairly widespread sense of cynicism about the whole political system that we have and whether any of the parties are actually going to do any good. So who do you vote for? You know, if the whole system is corrupt, if it's flawed, it's not worth supporting. And that can lead to a sense of hopelessness in the feeling that there's nothing I can do, including voting democratically, which will actually change anything for the better. So that's what I got out of that. And I bring this up because I believe that the book of Jeremiah speaks a lot about this feeling and this sense that there are a lot of broken systems in society. So Jeremiah, as we've seen in this series, is a book detailing um, prophetic judgments of God against the nation of Judah leading up to the time of their defeat and their exile into Babylon. And into that context, Jeremiah, as a prophet, he speaks about the problems that have led to this dire situation and what God is thinking about them and what he wants to do about them. And a lot of the problems he talks about are actually sort of system, systemic problems with the culture and the institutions of the nation. Not just bad behaviour by individual people or kings, but a, a whole system that is corrupt and is in decline. And our sermons last week and this week focus most clearly on this theme in Jeremiah, and sort of there's sort of a two-parter if you were here last week. So last week Vivian looked at Jeremiah's words against the bad kings of Judah and how they'd failed to lead and how to govern with justice uh, and do what they should be doing. And instead they'd looked after themselves and they'd completely lost their sense of purpose as leaders under God. And we saw then how the leaders of the state and the government and how people in those positions can abandon God's vision for what it's supposed to be uh, as a leader and their purpose as leaders under God. Uh, and they lead people astray into destruction, as, the, as those kings did. So that's the kings. And today's the other half of that issue, which is Jeremiah's judgment over the religious leaders of Judah. It's a very common theme in his book throughout. And, it's, and he talks about the way they'd led people into spiritual delusion and false beliefs and leading to destruction by, you know, this is another way you get to that path. So we see when we read Jeremiah that he sees both the political and the religious systems in Judah are corrupt and they're leading to inevitable decline. Today we want to focus on the religious leaders and the prophets and the priests and the other spiritual leaders of the day. Now as we do that, it should be something of a scary topic for us as a church and especially those of us who are Christian leaders because what we see here is that it's possible for us to end up somehow in the firing line of God's judgement and 
through the way we believe and the way we live out our faith. So we can actually be complicit, Jeremiah says, in the pattern of decline and destruction in our own society. And in fact, we might be partly responsible for it. And so what does Jeremiah then see as the cause of this problem? What's his diagnosis of the spiritual decline in Judah? Well, as we see, he focuses particularly on the problem of what he calls false prophets. So essentially when he talks about false prophets, what he means is to describe the reality that he sees, that the bearers of spiritual leadership in his community have, have become turned away from the truth of God and from leading people to God. And instead those leaders, the priests in, in the temple and the prophets who would teach the people, they have turned towards their own selfish good and towards saying, you know, well, whatever it takes to keep the system going that supports them. So what he sees is that these religious leaders tell the people of Judah what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. And they fabricate messages from God and they lead people to believe that everything is okay and everything's going to be okay, when actually it's not okay and it's not going to be okay. So in verses 16 to 17 of our reading, he says... This is what the Lord Almighty says. Do not listen to what the prophets are prophesying to you. They fill you with false hopes. They speak visions from their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. And they keep saying to those who despise me, the Lord says you will have peace. And to all who follow the stubbornness of their hearts, they say no harm will come to you. So those prophets and priests, they know if they tell people, like the kings and other rich people in particular, that things are going to be good, that won't cause them any trouble at all because no one ever complained about getting good news. And so the prophets don't talk about the problems they see, they don't talk about injustice, they don't talk about idolatry or sin or anything like that. They treat these problems, if they do at all, as not being very bad or being very simple to deal with. So in chapter 6, verse 13 to 15, Jeremiah says this word of the Lord over the prophet, of these leaders. He says, from the least to the greatest, they are all greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. And they dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. So these priests and prophets are determined to avoid any suggestion that there's a war coming or conflict or that something might be going wrong, anything that will upset the system that they live in. And there even seems to have been a common saying that these leaders taught the people to say, to learn by heart, to the effect that just because God had his temple in Jerusalem, it would never be conquered, it would never be destroyed, it couldn't be. And so in chapter 7, verse 4, Jeremiah says, don't trust in their deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. It's like this mantra that the people were taught against worrying about anything. Nothing can go wrong for us. This is the temple of the Lord. Nothing can, be, nothing can go wrong. He won't let it be defeated. And so instead of confronting problems, the prophets were soothing them. And so, in, in summary, Jeremiah is saying at the heart of the Judean society there's this leadership system of kings and priests and prophets and they've lost a true knowledge of God and they've substituted their own agenda for it. And so that leaves the nation unable to reform itself. Okay? And so the prophets are supposed to stand up to the king when he goes the wrong way, but they've gone with him instead. And we see Jeremiah tries to do that himself and does a lot of times and he, and he says what needs to be said and he gets punished for it by persecuted by the king and the other prophets too. And I think what we can take away from this theme in Jeremiah in a general sense is that is the understanding, I think, that at the heart of a culture or a society that has no integrity, one that's falling apart as Judah was, in decline, um, and unable to renew itself, is a faulty understanding of God. This is Jeremiah's diagnosis. There's a false religion there based on self-interest and it takes the place of a true spiritual life. 
And I want to expand on that for you now, how it works, I think, and what Jesus teaches and how what he shows is actually opposed to this idea completely and how his, his ideas are different. And basically what Jeremiah is doing is pointing out that the prophets and priests in Judah in his day are taking the place in their society that the pagan priests of the surrounding nations took in theirs, in their own social system. So just to think, but think about how history works. I think if you, look at a, if you look at history, there's a kind of universal social structure that emerges in various forms around the world, a sort of pyramid of society and power and hierarchy within it. So at the, above everything in, the, in this idea are the gods or the beings of the divine realm. They are above the world um, and controlling it or have excess, exercising their power. And at the very top of the pyramid of society, there is the king or the pharaoh or the emperor. And he's in, he's in direct connection with the gods, perhaps partly divine himself. It's usually him too, of course. Um, and below the king, supporting him and interpreting the gods, are a group of priests, usually, who run the show. Okay? And they make sure that the people give the sacrifices that the gods need, and they keep the gods' favour. And below all the, in this, the large group below all these, uh, the priests and the, the king and the priests, are the people. So some of them are doing okay, and a lot of them are right at the bottom. So those are the, your slaves, those are the people who are not doing very well at all in society. And those people, they serve the king. They build up his wealth, they fight in his wards under, his, under their gods. And that was the standard view of how society should be structured in the days of Jeremiah. And it's one of the most common forms, I think, in recorded history, if you look at the world. In the, New, the Old Testament, however, I think is designed largely to be a critique of this kind of system and to propose a different kind of society altogether. In fact, I believe the biblical version of what the kingdom of God and his people is supposed to be like is actually the opposite of this. So you turn the pyramid over. So in God's vision for the world, God is actually the one carrying the, the world, who sustains it. He is the one who's lifting his people up and meeting their needs. They don't, he serves them. He gives them grace. He gives them blessing. And whatever people sacrifice to him is just something that is a thanksgiving, not something he asks for or requires. Um, and the leaders of this kingdom, the ones at the, at the very top, are supposed to be the servants of everyone, people who share the character of God and who work for the good of others. And so this is the vision that many people have called the upside-down kingdom of God. And it's very clear that this is what Jesus believed was his, his kingdom and what was true of himself and the kingdom he was building and to be true, it was to be true of his followers. So we read about a conversation at the Last Supper between Jesus and his disciples in Luke chapter 22, verse 24 to 29. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be considered the greatest. And Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. And of course, Jesus demonstrated this servant kingship of his by at that meal washing the feet of his disciples. We remember that. As a servant would. And he, of course, then, of course, went on to die for them and for us on the cross. And so bearing the weight of the whole world on his shoulders, you imagine that pyramid and all its needs and all its pain flowing down towards him. So in the New Testament, the greatest leader, the king and the priest over everyone, he takes the lowest point in the pyramid. He's right at the bottom of society. Um, for that reason though, he is closest to God. 
And he is the connection between God and human beings because he reaches down to where God's um, love and, and blessing is, which is right at the bottom, underneath everything. And so for anyone who is a leader in Jesus' kingdom, it involves a greater and greater humility and greater and greater service of others. And that's the Christian vision, I think, of what political and spiritual power is supposed to be like. But the great temptation we have, of course, if you look at the history of the church, is to try and turn that pyramid back over again. And it has often been done. You know, so we, we do turn the pyramid back to, and create a system where we think, okay, right at the top is the sovereign God demanding our, our allegiance, controlling the world. Underneath Jesus is perhaps you know, kind of the emperor of the world and his kings are underneath there, the priests and those who teach the people and under that, the Christian people serving them. That's a very common pattern and it happens across all sorts of, all sorts of churches, all sorts of places throughout Christian history. And the idea in this system then is if you want to get closer to God, you must climb higher and higher and higher up through your self-effort, through spiritual disciplines, through natural birth privileges or gifts that God's given you until you're great and good enough to connect with God. And so the best you can be is one of the elite up the top who serve God uh, directly. And I stress this picture because I think it's very true and I think it's in a lot of people's minds and to be honest, I think this is what a huge percentage of people inside and outside the church actually believe Christianity is about that kind of system. And I think if people didn't believe that, there wouldn't be so many atheists in Western countries. Um, because modern atheism, I think, is largely about people rejecting that vision of the world and, so, and trying to undo the kingdom of power by knocking off the God at the top of it. Okay? And saying, if we get rid of him, then we can get rid of this system that is oppressing people underneath it. Uh, and there's a lot to be said for that, I think. It's actually a quite prophetic impulse, if that's the way the church is set up. Because if you have that pyramid, the God at the top of that pyramid we know is actually not the real God. It's not the, God, not the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Um, so for Christians, you know, God is not a being at the top of the pyramid of world power and domination. And Jesus had a name for that so-called God, and he called him the Prince of this world. And you know who he's talking about? <laughs> Satan. The prince of this world. The one who wants to control everyone and everything and will do what he must do to get that to happen. Okay? And really, that's, that's a problem of idolatry that Jeremiah is talking about. To worship and serve this prince is the greatest form of idolatry that God's people have. And one of the great temptations we see that Jesus was given by Satan in the desert, he, Satan said, worship me and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world as yours to control. And Jesus rejected that vision and that temptation. And Jeremiah saw the kings and the priests of his day were actually falling for it, though, for that lie, and he called it out for what it was. God wanted his prophets to break open this system when it showed itself in Judah and to turn it back up again. But they failed, didn't they? They said everything is okay. They said there's peace, peace, when there was no peace between God and his people. And what they should have been done was teaching people about this upside-down kingdom and encouraging them to know God truthfully. Because that kingdom is the way that leads to experiencing God's blessing. Because God is not the prince of this world. God is something completely different altogether. And we're not, we don't always understand who God really is. So this is where we, need, we might just talk about the Trinity for a minute. Um, the Trinity is the vision of God that Jesus revealed to us about who God is, what God really is when we say we're talking about God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I want to read to you from the words of the Apostle John. Because so, he was one of Jesus' disciples, and he was concerned about the very same things as Jeremiah was, which were the things he saw in his churches. People having idolatry, 
and not loving each other. And so he wanted to speak to them about who God really is. And so in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 to 16, he speaks about this. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and he knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. And he says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. So what is God? What do we mean when we say God? Let me be clear. God is a community of self-giving love. That's what God is. Not a super being above the pyramid of the world, but a community of love, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit underneath everything, sustaining all things by his love. That's, the, that's what we mean when we talk about the Trinity. And so that's nothing to do with the idea of God as a powerful dictator or the prince of the world, controlling the world or people's lives, or wanting a self-interested social system that to serve him. And so God is a community of love who sustains a community of service and humility. That's his kingdom. And so as Jesus shows us, this is Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God, and that leads us into this community of the Trinity. If you go down the bottom, right and out at the bottom of the pyramid of the world, following Jesus, that's where you find God. That's where you enter into this God of love. And that's true spiritual life. God lives in us and we live in him. And the only way through there is following Jesus' way of sacrifice and humility, he says. And so that, that's this vision of what it actually means uh, to be a community, of, of a spiritual community, and what we're seeking, th this kingdom. And so if we come back out and ask, what does this mean for us today in terms of Jeremiah's problem that he had with the spiritual people in his day? It's really just to ask ourselves, what can go wrong with the church that leads to that kind of result where we're not actually following this kingdom and knowing God? What makes the church or groups of Christian people to go into decline or become servants of a corrupt system rather than renewing it? And it's a challenge for us. Um, now, you can get off track with that because there are lots of things you can look at and criticise where Christians have failed or the church is doing unhelpful things. And a lot of effort is spent at times to offer a reason why the church isn't doing very well. And we need to be open to that. But I think what Jeremiah says is the real problem is not all the particular things we can point out about what church could do better, and there are many, but the heart problem behind all our problems is we fail, to f we fail to forget who God really is. Sorry, we forget who God really is. And we substitute our own God for that and serve him. And there would be many signs that the church in Australia has often done that. Um, we're aware of how often our churches have been part of abusive, destructive situations in the community. We've let people down who are just wanting to know God, okay, for our own good, our own needs. We believe what we want to be true about God rather than what's real. Jeremiah says of this in our reading, verse 25 to 27, I've heard what the prophets say who prophesy lies in my name. They say, I had a dream, I had a dream. How long will this continue in the hearts of these lying prophets who prophesy the delusions of their own minds? They think the dreams they tell one another will make my people forget my name, just as their ancestors forgot my name through Baal worship. 
This is a problem for all, all who, everyone who, who tries to know God, not just Christian leaders. It's about all of us who are followers of Jesus. Because if, if that's who we are, it's our calling to act as leaders, in, spiritual leaders in our community and to show people what God really is like. And so how might this apply to us? These, what are the dreams that we're tempted to make up and put in the place of a real experience and knowledge of God? Because that's what will lead us astray. And that's the point at which we'll forget the name of God, as Jeremiah says, and we'll, put, we'll buy into some religious system or other that's part of the kingdom of the world. Um, and it doesn't matter really what that kind, what, if, if we do that, what the religion looks like externally. So it could be a mega church, it could be a small, intimate, organic community, it could be a highly formal religious system or very informal gatherings of friends. But all of those communities can be based around a dream and a false idea of who God is and our own needs. Um, and the dream that can, we can be following is not God, but also but perhaps financial security. The dream of a nice house, comfort, all the things that we need, all we want. It could be a dream of prestige, it could be a dream of health, well-being, success, fame, admiration, enjoyable life, all the things that we do, we also want. And we can say, well, God wants me to have those things and I'm going to pursue them and set up a system to help me get them. It can be even more subtle than that, though. It can be the dream of having a wonderful church. It can be the dream of having a ministry of amazing impact, a dream of my own glory or ours in the world. Um, it can be the dream of having powerful experiences of God. It doesn't matter what the dream is. The prince of the world that we know is happy to promise that he will give us this dream if only we will worship him and participate in his kingdom and do what he asks. And the more we follow that dream, you know, trying to climb up the pyramid, you know, get, get, a, get ahead, get closer to the God we think we're getting closer to, the further, the further away we end from God's kingdom. And the more likely we are to surround ourselves with false, false prophets who tell us what we want to hear. That's a hard word, isn't it, for us? Um, because it does describe a lot of what happens in the church, in every country, every time and every place. And unfortunately, it always will. And I need to say that because I think the point is not that we to say, oh, we need to be perfect or else the church is to be written, written off. But actually, just to recognise there's always going to be a tension between who God is and who we want God to be. Okay? A tension between who God is and who we want him to be. At this point in history, you know, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God, they're in, in tension. We're torn between them. We were remembering Jesus is the Lord of the world and his kingdom is operating, but there is a kingdom opposing it. That tempts us and, and draws us to that, towards that as well, the prince of this world. And that affects even our faith and the things we do as followers of Jesus. None of us are totally free from the, the, from the lies and the delusions of false gods, false prophets, and the things that we want to hear. And so a prophet like Jeremiah is just pointing this out with the goal that we become aware and continue to struggle against this temptation, as Jesus did, to, vict to victory over it. At St. Mark's, we'll experience that struggle as well. We've got our own vision for the future of our church and what, and what it means to pursue that. And we've got to ask, is that what God is actually asking us to do or are we building another kingdom? Good question. Good to be aware of. You know, because every believer, every church, every nation needs to come back and search for what is real and to know God truthfully. And that can be a painful experience for God to show us what is real. But it's a liberating one. God says to Jeremiah in our reading that really hearing his word and really knowing him will change us. It has the power to destroy the systems that we set up to avoid him and to lie to ourselves. So in verse 28 to 29 of our passage, he says, let the one who has my word speak it faithfully. For what has straw to do with grain? So that is, what is what is real have to do with what is false, the real grain, the false, and the chaff. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer? 
that breaks a rock into pieces. God's word breaks things open. And Jesus was equally forthright about this reality. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, he says, Do not suppose I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And the sword he's saying is actually his truth directed against corrupt religion and false prophets and all those things. I'm going to cut them open, he says, and show them for what they really are. And it appears that God cares a great deal about being accurately represented by people who claim to believe in him. A great deal. And if we don't, his word is like fire and a hammer that breaks a rock into pieces. And he cares enough about our world that he will allow judgment to come on political and religious systems that oppress people and keep us away from him and his kingdom. So in the end, uh, our vote at the ballot box maybe will make a difference, maybe it won't. Um, if the politicians we're voting for are corrupt, it might not make it much difference at all. And of course, though, it's worth participating. We're trying to make things better in our politics and our religious life if we can and to be part of the world. But Jeremiah, I think, says to us, what makes more difference overall is which kingdom are we joining ourselves to in every part of our lives? Which kingdom are we actually serving? Are we trying to climb up to the top of the kingdom of the world, get up to the top and find our place in there, hopefully a nice, comfortable one? Or are we following Jesus down to the bottom and through that into the community of love that is the true God? The choice before us today. Let me pray as we reflect on that. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge as we have this morning that you are ascended as the king of the world and we know that this means not that you lord it over us but that you are now and always have been the servant of everyone. We pray that we would capture your vision for your kingdom and what, how it transforms and challenges and changes us, our churches, our communities and our nation and the world around. And we are aware of the tension in us and between us. We are tempted by false dreams, we're tempted to seek our own good uh, and to set up systems that hold other people down and I pray that you would break it open in our hearts, that your fire would come and your uh, hammer would break open the rocky hearts that we have and we pray that we would know that who you really are and that your love would be seen in us. In Jesus' name, Amen.